So we, we were looking for estimates of like how many masks are being produced so we could get an estimate of how many are discarded. And the best estimate we could find, and this is, this is conservative, is about 52 billion masks were produced in 2020. This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the fur bearers. The coronavirus pandemic has forced a lot of change in the world in the last 13 months. One of the most notable, unfortunately, is an increase in plastic waste entering our oceans. Personal protective equipment, or PPE, which is frequently made with plastics, more than doubled in size as a global industry in response to the pandemic. Oceans Asia, a nonprofit focused on marine conservation, released a dire report indicating 1.56 billion face masks entered the marine environment in 2020. To dive into where this waste comes from, how it impacts the planet, and what we can all do to make a difference today and into the future, Dr. Teal Phelps Bondaroff, one of the founders of Ocean Asia and authors of the report, joined the Defender Radio podcast. We, we've had a, a, a long conversation leading up to our conversation now, and I've, I've been looking at your report since it was issued uh, a few weeks ago, and I spent more time today looking at it with the particular intent of how do I form questions around some of this? Because it's a very well done report, lots of data, lots of difficulty, I think, in comparing things because there's numbers that are so large that mm. it's 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 sort of difficult to fathom, let alone to then express in any relatable way. So I guess after spending, you know, a, a, a bit of intimate time going over this and trying to formulate questions, the best one I can come up with is what are we doing? I I am terrified yeah. right now after reading this, to be honest, like uh, the, the growth of plastic in the ocean, I guess before I panic, Let's maybe have that quick 90-second elevator pitch from the executive summary of where are we at with the growth of ocean plastic, in particular from PPE, in now yeah. 2021? It might be a bit more than an elevator pitch. As you saw by the length of the report there, I'm not particularly a short-winded person, especially mm-hmm. when I'm giving the long format of the old podcast here. But, um, well, just a bit more about our organization. Um, so Ocean's Asia, uh, we're, we're an organization, a marine conservation organization that is based out of Hong Kong. I operate remotely from here in Victoria, Canada, and um, our, our primary focus has actually been mostly on illegal fishing and um, looking at like marine mammal conservation in Hong Kong and, and more broadly. But uh, about two years ago, we launched a marine plastic survey. So we have some remote islands down in the Soko Islands, which are just south of Lantau. And uh, by remote, I mean that they're boat in access only. Yeah. So you have to use our, we have our boat Seawolf um, and uh, we sail down there and we will you know, do a plastic survey every about two weeks. We're doing aerial shots with a drone to, um, to study the accumulation of plastic over time. And then we'll take samples of the sand for microplastic surveys. So we've been doing that for about four or five months. And this was before COVID hit Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And about six weeks after COVID hit Hong Kong, my colleague Gary's out on the beach and he found 70 face masks that had washed up. Now, when I was on the beach there about two years ago now, you could do a survey and you could find anything on the beach. Like you could basically set up your bingo card and you could find like any hygiene product. You could probably find one of them, maybe. Yeah. Um, but 70 masks was kind of, was new. And since that point, every single visit of every beach, 
on in the Socos and in and around Hong Kong, we found dozens of masks. I think the fewest we found was like 12 one day, and that's because we've been there a few days earlier. And these, um, these are islands where people don't live. Like, this is not yeah. like Toronto Island or Victoria or Vancouver Island. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting, too, and this is sort of contextualizes scale of marine plastic pollution. So I've done beach cleanups out here on the West Coast, and we'll go out with like surf riders who are great. And over the course of two hours, I might collect two or three bags of garbage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'll range from bottles to little chunks, maybe some fishing gear, some styrofoam, and a couple large items that wash ashore. This beach in Socos, you could have collected a bag of garbage in seconds wow. because there were actual full bags of garbage washed up on the beach. Uh, one of the things that we did was we started finding like household items. And so we actually constructed, my, my, my colleague Gary and I, a bachelor's pad. So we had a chair, an end table, a television, a refrigerator, all these things just from maybe 20 meters to 50 meters of beach. And so it really helped sort of crystallize for me the scale of the problem. Because when people visit, say, an urban beach or a tourist beach, those are cleaned up regularly. But we are talking about like actual mounds of plastic, um, so much so that we actually were on one beach and found a whole boat underneath piles of plastic, wow. like a full boat had washed ashore during storms the previous year, and it just been sitting there the whole time. And so like you, you were asking sort of about the broader issue of plastic pollution in our oceans. The, the broader issue is that face masks are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, humans in 2018 produce about 359 million metric tons of plastic. And a significant percentage of that enters our oceans. Yeah, between like, it's hard to tell the exact numbers, but at least 3% of that enters our oceans. And about 8 million metric tons a year of plastic will enter the oceans. That's about 8 million pieces of plastic a day. And so that is sort of the scale that we're dealing with. And it's all kinds of plastic, right? It's uh, fishing, a significant, significant percentage of that is fishing gear, yep. which of course is particularly onerous because it's designed to kill marine wildlife, but also bottles and plastic and, you know, toothbrushes. Um, anyone who's done a, a beach visit can sort of do the survey of, you know, which items. And when you look at the items, you know, the biggest item that's found are cigarette filters, and then you've got shoes and, and other items that are sort of remain longer in the water column and are more likely to be transported. But that's really the scale of the problem. There's a lot of plastic entering our oceans. And so when we broke down our study into just face masks, what we were doing was really trying to contextualize a bigger problem. And so what we did was we, we started looking at the numbers of uh, a face masks that are being produced because you know, the question is like, well, how many face masks are entering our oceans? So after yeah. our initial, we had a big news story in like February last year about face masks on the beach. And we talked to lots of journalists about it. And the question that we couldn't answer was how many face masks are washing into our oceans? And it was really difficult to calculate this because the pandemic is ongoing and the number of face masks that are being produced each month has been ramping up astronomically. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, um, in 2019, the global market for face masks, which is estimated because these numbers weren't kept, was about $0.79 billion USD. In 2020, and this is from a few months ago, the number was $166 billion. So that's a lot. That's a lot of money by any any standard in today's economy. That is a significant amount of money. And, and it's hard to sort of calculate the number of masks that represents, because obviously the price of masks has also gone up. So we, we were looking for estimates of like how many masks are being produced, so we could get an estimate of how many are discarded. And the best estimate we could find, and this is, this is conservative, is about 52 billion masks were produced in 2020. And so then going into literature, most of the work on marine plastic pollution and plastic loss suggests that about 3% of plastic enters our ocean every year. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, about 2% is littered, and that is an overall global estimate. Some jurisdictions with really bad waste management systems may see 25 or more percent of plastic entering the environment around them, which is much higher. Yeah. But 2% is a very conservative estimate. And the other thing that's worth mentioning is that, you know, it's hard to come up with these raw global numbers because contexts are different. So for example, face masks and PPE that are used in a hospital setting are much more likely to be disposed of in a proper way because they're incinerated and they have a waste management system for medical waste. Yep. And so, you know, basically there were some push and pull factors, but we realized, we reckoned that a 3% loss rate was a very good conservative loss rate. And that allowed, allowed us to calculate that about 1.56 billion face masks entered our oceans in 2020 which is roughly between 4,680 to 6,240 metric tons of plastic. So this, this is where I start to have trouble because I try to calculate what that means. What, what, what does that look like? Because you say a number like that, and honestly, it's kind of meaningless to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I know how much I weigh. I know how much I can lift. I know how much my dog weighs. I know roughly how much my car weighs. That's about the extent of my knowledge of the size of things personally. So mm -hmm. I, I spent some time, like I said, with the study today, trying to come up with comparisons and a 747 at its absolute maximum takeoff load is 330,000 kilograms, roughly. So a third of a metric ton. Right. Okay. So in order to get to the numbers you're talking about, I have to try and envision at least 100 stacked jumbo jets completely full of people, fuel, and cargo. And that gets me into the ballpark. Right. And of course, that's just face masks. Yes. Right? And then if you can then imagine, I mean, yeah, this is one of the challenges you get when it comes to sort of science communication around big numbers. You'll notice we don't have a lot of contextualizing numbers in the report because I couldn't come up with any ones that were yeah. like... Well, how do you say that? Like, again, it's the closest thing I could find that I can visualize in the context of me versus it is a 747. And that's yeah. huge. That's a yeah. lot of weight. And the other challenge you get into is the idea that, like, the average weight for a mask is about three to four grams. Yeah. And so we have this idea of these are lightweight issues. But, of course, three tons of base mask and three tons of building plastic are exactly the same weight, right? But it's we still have these perceptions around that. Uh, one of the things I do is I, I, uh, I coach high school debate out mm -hmm. here on the West Coast uh, with a, a team up island remotely. I've been doing that for a few years. And we're always telling the kids what, you should contextualize information. People lose the ability to understand what a billion is. You know, yeah. When we say that Jeff Bezos made a billion dollars while we're talking, um, people don't know. I don't know what a billion dollars looks like. I, I don't know what a billion things look like. And so, yeah, 8 million metric tons of plastic is I, – I don't know what that even – I couldn't even – yeah, it, it's, it's a lot of plastic. It's a huge number. And it's the and it might have actually been through mutual friends that I first saw the um billionaire shouldn't exist concept that right, yeah. which went around over the course of the last couple of years, I think. Uh well, you see the stats on like how would you possibly spend a billion dollars? Exactly. It's not possible to spend the amount of money these people are sitting on. So why yeah. are they sitting on it? Which is the the argument in that case. But in this case, it's still the parts of that that work carry over is our brains didn't evolve in a way to manage concepts of that size, that scale. Yeah. And this is another aspect of it as well is, and this is actually a beneficial aspect in the mm -hmm. communication that we've been doing is become blind to seeing when we see things over and over again. So 
if you go out and walk around the city, you probably won't notice some plastic pollution that's on the ground because it's been there since the 70s. So bottles, uh, bits of cup, cutlery, those kind of blend into the urban environment. One of the reasons why our work on face masks, I think, has been so resonant is that people could see them. So a face mask is light, it's a light color, it wafts in the breeze, it moves around. You notice it because you haven't seen it before. And so when people go out and walk around their community, and I was at home for a jog yesterday and I found like seven different face masks because I could see them. But I was also realizing that as I'm walking around, there's a cup on the ground from McDonald's and there's some cutlery on the side. And unless I'm looking for it, unless I turn my, my, my plastic pollution eyes on, I'm missing it. And so we actually, one of the benefits of this work that we've been doing is it's given us an opportunity to talk about the impact of plastic pollution more generally, um, using the issue of face masks and PPE as sort of an, an entree into the issue. Because otherwise, so much of the time, um, people aren't even aware this is a problem. It's a classic situation of you show someone a picture of the ocean, like one behind yeah. me, you can't see this, but I have a, a mural painted by my father of the West Coast, and a healthy ocean and an unhealthy ocean look identical, right? Unless there's anyone, a whale that's belly up floating in the ocean, you don't notice the difference. And whereas people who look at a forest, that's a healthy forest, it's robust, it's got a wide range of species, there's different levels of foliage, compared to a clear cut, it becomes more obvious. And so really trying to draw attention to an issue is a challenge, as I'm sure you're aware of in any issue, but with the face masks, we've been able to use a particularly like visible problem and then highlight that and then use that as a way of segueing people into the broader problem of plastic pollution. Because really like 6,000 tons of face masks, unfortunately it might be a bunch of jumbo jets, but it is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to plastic pollution. Well, and that's certainly one of the things you bring up in the report is, um, and I'm going to quickly scroll because I'm unprepared. The um, oh, Here they are. I see the picture. Let me see if I can find it. The gyres. Um, the marine plastic pollution accumulates into a, lump, a number of large marine gyres. Again, I've heard about this and it's a scary idea and I've seen some pictures of it, mm. but what drove it home for me was to take your number of how big that gyre is, just 1.6 million square kilometers, which again, yeah. I live in 500 square feet. So that's what I'm dealing with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to put this in context, and this this gave me a chill when I did this. And again, it's just sitting and plugging in numbers and seeing what, Things are roughly the same size. The entirety of Ontario is less than 1.6 million kilometers. It's just over 1 million kilometers square. Right. So, oh, so it's like, oh, wow, okay. So to put in scale, the size of this gyre, it is the size of the province. Of, it's larger than the size of the province of Ontario floating in the ocean. Yeah. What's interesting about those is that... Um, there was a bunch of work done oh, more than a decade ago around like the idea of like the plastic island, yeah. right? And and people think of like a plastic island, they think of like solid plastic you could walk on. But really what it is, is it's a higher density of plastic in one area. And the really mind-boggling thing for me is you look at, you know, gyres and like the, the accumulation of plastic in these areas. And then you look at the research that's trying to calculate plastic in our oceans based on floating plastic. And there is a, a huge discrepancy, right? So like the mm -hmm. plastic, plastic, a lot of plastic floats, not all of it does, but a lot of plastic floats, you'd expect to see more of it on the surface, but there's this missing plastic problem. And that's a really worrisome problem. Well, one of the many worrisome aspects is you should expect to see the cover, this, this ocean solidly covered in plastic, but it's not. That plastic's going somewhere. It's entering the food web. It's you know becoming part of our ocean, but it's not always on the surface. It becomes part of the water column. So in addition to the surface area of Ontario, you also have to multiply that by the water column itself. So imagine that space Jeez. running straight down to the bottom of the ocean. You've got a column of water 
and I'm not good at math that quickly, so I will pretend to guess. <laughs> but if you, know, you have Real a, a giant deep. Home. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the kind of three-dimensional aspect you're dealing with. And that's something that I think we as like terrestrial animals have difficulty conceptualizing. That when we're talking about the ocean, you know, we can think of, yeah, the ocean's deep, but like how deep is it? Well, one of my examples I've been using a lot in communicating around marine plastic pollution is in, in March, uh, March 5th, 2020, a new species was discovered. Um, and it was discovered 20,000 feet down the Marianas Trench, which is one of the deepest parts of our ocean. And, you know, when scientists discover a new species, it gives them an opportunity to name it. And that's kind of a big honor. Like, I remember, I don't know if you've ever read Farside Comics. Mm -hmm. um, Gary Larson, who does Farside Comics, was honored. Someone named a blood-sucking tick after him. <laughs> and it was something Larsona. And he, he had this in, like, the front page of all of his books going forward. He was like, yes, thank you for naming yeah. me after a beautiful tick. Um, so you have an opportunity to name a species after something. You name it after your, your supervisor, after your research funders. So, are, are you familiar with the Golden Casino Monkey? No. Yeah, we'll take a quick aside on that in a second. Oh. <laughs> Anyhow, this, this new crustacean species discovered 20,000 feet down the Marinette's Trench was named Eurethanes plasticus. Because wow. even 20,000 feet down, they found PET in its stomach. So that's kind of like the extent of the plastic. You've got plastic at the bottom of our oceans. And then there was actually a study that came out, oh, maybe about a month and a half ago, where microplastic was found in the snows of Everest. Jeez. Which means that's, that's, that's that complete cycle, though. That's what that represents. Yeah. yeah and, and then other studies have found like microplastic and sea salt. Um, there was a study in France in May of last year that found it in sea spray. So you're out there lying on the beach, you're watching the big waves come in as for, you know, for storm watching. And that sea spray is full of plastic. Right. Um, but I did promise I'd tell you the golden yes, casino monkey. Yes, golden casino uh, monkey. This is a, a topic I ran with my debate students a few years back. But basically, a new monkey species was discovered, the, the golden casino monkey. And conservationists were trying to raise money to protect the species' habitat. And they realized that rather than naming the species after their supervisor or like its local area, maybe using a local indigenous name for it because it wasn't discovered, it was described by science. I'm sure local indigenous Fair. folks are. Very, very good point. Yes always a good option, right? Mm -hmm. um, they decided to like put it out to the highest bidder. And I, I don't remember the amount of money involved, but the Golden Casino, um, I think it was an online casino, possibly a real casino, gave them a bunch of money to name the monkey after them. And they used that money for conservation. It, it clearly uh, flurry of the taxonomy world because like people have problems with that. And look, that's a debate <laughs> we need to get into because I, you know, I'm not sure where I stand on necessarily. Um, and it's been a while since I looked at the uh, at the issue itself. But it does raise some interesting questions. It does. It's certainly it's a conversation starter, to say the very, very least. And it's the kind of thing where I personally have an immediate gut reaction to that. So I imagine it would make for a good debate. Um, it is. It's interesting, too, because if you have the initial reaction and then you also think, well, they do need money for conservation. I think they ended up the name reverted after a few years because like taxonomists are a very serious bunch of people. Sort of like the Sky Dome changing its name to the, yeah, like that's been a big deal. Yeah, right. Okay. People can, well, and like, you know, this conversation around like renaming streets that were named after racists or taking down statues has galvanized people as well for some reason. So yeah, um, yeah I mean, not for some reason, for very oh. obvious reasons, I guess. But uh, yeah, so clearly there's, there's things around naming. Um, in the taxonomy world, people get very uh, heated and it's... Well, that's there's, that's even um, uh, for listeners who have listened to the conversations about Algonquin wolves, eastern coyotes, and Ontario wolves and all of that. Mm. That has been part of the argument is what do we call these animals? Are they wolves right. or well, like, are they something else? Are they a subspecies or are they this? And 
generally, this is, it's one of those fascinating things about science where to you and me, it doesn't really matter. But in the world of conservation science, properly naming things is one of the steps in properly then identifying, protecting, researching, yeah. et cetera. Like it, it seems super silly to be concerned over what the name of this animal is because that animal can't say that name anyway. But it does have consequence later on in the world in ways that we may not see. Well, and we also see this on the other side where um, mark people who are marketing species um, mm -hmm. also try to rename to make them more palatable. So the uh, the Patagonian toothfish was often named Chilean sea bass, right, as a marketing tool to try and market this this fish, which huge percentages of it were, were poached in the nineties. Um, yeah, I think it was at one point ninety percent of all the fish in the market came from illegal sources. Um, it's being fixed now, partly because the species is the populations are crashing partly because local uh, legal fishers are, are kind of coming after them. But um, yeah, and, and they've remarketed the Patagonia toothfish, which is a gorgeous fish that's very snaggletooth and, and aggressive looking yeah. um, to the Patagonia, to the Chilean sea bass, which is a much softer name, right? Sounds like something you're going to order at the restaurant as opposed to this aggressive sounding thing that might poison me. Right. Yeah. Take the hagfish, for example. Like, I mean, what, what a pejorative name, right? But if we called it the mucus worm, it'd actually probably be worse. Uh, you know, if it was called the, the glorious sea, sea serpent or something, suddenly yeah. you have it. So these, these things do matter. Um, one of the challenges I've noticed, I do a lot of research in, in sea cucumber conservation, is also the problem around common names, where you'll have a common name is applied to three or four different species. So it can actually confuse uh, conservation efforts um, because you'll see, you know, efforts to add one species to CITES. And if we don't have a clear definition of what that species yes. is, then some conservation issues kind of become more challenging. Well, CITES is so good at coming to an agreement on things. So, um, <laughs> yes, well, your listeners can't see our eyes rolling at the moment, um, which I assure you they are. <laughs> um, so, Talking about the plastic, plastic yeah, plastic in the water. Um, we, we're talking about the volume of it, and the volume is difficult to understand. And we're we're talking. I mean, there's a focus on PPE right now because we've talked about the massive upscale of PPE. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, there's some of it I, I can't even envision how to have a conversation around. Again, I have friends who are ICU nurses, and if they say I need to do this to stay safe so I can keep doing this. Who am I to be the one to say, yeah. well, no, you can't do that. No, of course not. Right. They're saving lives. This is the rule they have. When I see an Uber driver with 18 uh, disposable masks hanging from the rearview mirror, I get a little mm -hmm. frustrated. Uh, right. Like well, this, I, is, this is part of our communications around this. I jump in there. If yeah. You, mind. Um, you know, operating out of Hong Kong, people in Hong Kong understand that you should wear a mask when you're sick. This goes back because they've had previous respiratory illnesses there before. Sorry, yes, and, and Kong, you can right? see this in a lot of major Canadian cities, too, where there is a – in Hamilton, we do have a significant Asian population. And since I moved here, it's not uncommon to see someone on the bus wearing a mask. And that is an incredibly respectful and courteous mm -hmm. thing to do for yourself and others. But what you also find is that if you know you're going to get sick in the year, because you probably will at one point, you're going to have a cloth mask. Because why would you burn your money that way, right? Well, like, yeah. You want to have a cloth mask that you can wash. And so uh, you know, people in Hong Kong got it. I think it was like 90 to 95% of people were wearing masks within days. Um, and they understood now there's still a lot of single-use masks, but there's a lot of reusable masks. And we've been in this pandemic for almost a year now. I mean, depending on where you are and where it hit. But it's yeah. been about a year. You should have some reusable masks. So what we've been messaging, and I think this is an important thing to communicate, is yes, wear a mask because like, absolutely keep other people safe. And then if you can at all, please wear a reusable mask because yes. that would be great. 
Um, obviously, some situations that's not okay. There's even like rules against it. I know if you mm-hmm. go to some medical things, you have to wear a surgical mask. Fair enough. Keep our you know keep our frontline workers safe. Absolutely. But the other thing that we've been exploring in like different solutions is it, there's lots of different things that you can do. So you know, for example, I'll look at my notes here. Um, you know, individuals can wear reusable masks, but then they can also like reduce their plastic consumption in other ways. Which yes. you know, we are addicted to single-use plastic. If you look at our oceans. Those 8 million metric tons, most of those aren't PPE. Mm-hmm. Most of those are bottles and cups and cutlery. So if you have to be wearing a single-use plastic mask, do it and maybe reach for sustainable products in other parts of your life. And then the other thing is there's been some great innovation being done in disposable masks that are both compostable or easy to dispose. Oh. One of the challenges you get with PPE is that they are mixed materials. So your typical surgical mask, the ones that most people, the disposable masks, people think they're paper or they're cloth. They're actually a melt-blown polypropylene. Mm-hmm. Similar material to like diapers. Um, and that material takes about 450 years to break down once it, it, uh, it enters the environment. And it actually doesn't like disappear. It breaks up into smaller microplastic, which we'll talk yeah, about. But, yeah. but there's other materials involved. So you've got um, cotton ear loops. And you've got a metal nose strip. And sometimes you have different materials in the actual structure of the mask itself. So from a recycling perspective, it's very difficult to recycle these mixed material products. There's a second factor of they could be contaminated. So, you know, if you're walking along the beach and you're doing the beach cleanup, you're going to pick up garbage and toss it in your, your bag. Great. But if you think it's potentially contaminated, you're less likely to pick it up. So in urban environments, I see lots of masks walking through parking lots yep. and I, unless I have gloves and like a mask of my own, I'm not going to go and collect all those because I would be concerned about contamination. And this is a particularly important issue for informal waste people, uh, people who work in the informal waste industry in developing countries. And then the economics of recycling is, is broken. Um, there's been some reports recently, I think yes. about 90% of American plastic is recycled and most of the little recycling stickers and you know things on plastic are there to say it could be recycled, but the facilities probably don't exist where you are. So all of these problems kind of like layer onto the PPE. And then the final factor is that waste management systems, if they're functioning, are overwhelmed very often by the sheer volume of plastic pollution. So a well-functioning waste management system, which is not all waste management systems, but a well-functioning waste management system could, you know, could be overwhelmed and, and the, the amount of plastic being produced during COVID has gone up. And then that leads to more spillage and loss. So these are the challenges when it comes to, to face masks and PPE particularly. And the fa- the face mask one again is is frustrating because it's a, as you said, there's there are developing scenarios and many of us can wear cloth. Again, I spent an old man just walked past my window and eyeballed me just so everyone. I I'm in a basement and people walk. I'm on an alley, and this old man slowly walked by and looked at me as though he wanted to enter my soul. And everyone needs to experience that with me right now. <laughs> Hamilton is wonderful sometimes. Anyway. I, that threw me completely off. Uh, I was going to actually, I realized what I was going to finish. The reason yes. I, was, I was talking about some of those things was that there's actually been a lot of innovation being developed around sustainable alternatives yes, to plastic disposable masks. So, you know, a Canadian company designed one disposable masks that can be made out of wood fiber. There's been oh. something like hemp. Um, there's a, something called a baca tree fiber, which is like a banana tree. You can do fibers from that. There's a mask made from coffee, which uh, I'm still trying to understand the mechanics, but they use the bits of coffee grinds and shells to make a material. Um, and then there's self-cleaning masks. So a couple of companies have produced masks that you plug them into a USB port and it heats up and, and kills off bacteria. 
So there's lots of um, solutions. One of the things that I've noticed, I haven't seen anyone wearing the, you know, the hemp or the wood fiber masks when I'm out and about. It's always conventional disposable masks or reusable masks. So there's, I think at the moment, disconnect between new technological advances and distribution and rollout of those, those technologies. And that's something that government can help with because you know, talking to some of these people who are designing masks, they'll often say, we designed a mask and then the government regulations change and now we have to, you know, and that's I, fine. You know. I noted that in the report too, that the, one of the difficulties in both building this report and in general with the PPE is that as we have gone, and I know this has led to a lot of distrust of government as well, as we've gone and as we've learned the rules and regulations have changed and updated. And I think for those of us who exist in worlds where we're used to dealing with science in that way, or we're used to being in the scientific process, for me, it's it's totally adjacent. I just talk to people about it. But it's familiar enough that, yeah, this is going to change. What we know today will be challenged tomorrow. And if we learn something better, we'll move on to that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but I think for people on the outside who aren't used to that type of process, it's, well, you told me this yesterday and that like, if, as we recall in Canada, we were told not to wear masks, but the intent of that was about making sure N95s were still available. Then we were told if you're going to wear a mask, wear a medical mask, but they said, nope, we still need to make sure those are available. And they said, it's one of these, it makes sense if you follow it from beginning to end, but if you're jumping in, in the middle, it sure as hell is confusing. Well, and, and yeah, like you said, this is the nature of science, right? Like we make decisions based on the best available information. Mm -hmm. And during an, our world, an ongoing pandemic, that information is going to change. I remember in the very first days of the pandemic, the conversation was about like, does it live on certain surfaces? Yep. Right. And I, I don't actually have a resolution to that because I know it's been going back and forth. Um, one of the projects I work on out here in Victoria is I help build and stock little free libraries, mm -hmm. book boxes that people yep. set up. And the concern was that you could have viruses on the books. And so about a third of the library shut down for a few months while that was being sorted out. And then, you know, protocols were people developed their own protocols around keeping people safe. But that's the nature of science. We get new information, we get new species. You know, people get upset about these changes, but we have to embrace them because really it's, it, we are learning more about the world. A really good example, actually, and this actually links back to some of the plastic stuff. And I think some of the things that your listeners are going to be particularly interested in was um, you know, bring up the study here because it's mm -hmm. on my. Uh, so earlier in 2020, there was a study by um, Fowler and and their colleagues in current biology, and they were looking at, at sea turtles and plastic pollution. Now, marine wildlife is often particularly impacted by plastics because when they ingest them, um, it can impact the animal. Uh, marine plastic um, adsorbs with an A adsorbs chemicals to its surface, which means that like toxins will adhere to the surface of the plastic. Okay. Especially if you ingest it, it's more toxic than, say, other things floating around in the water. And so that when you eat plastic, whether it's microplastic or you know, nurdles or larger chunks of plastic, it can then poison the animal, and that can bioaccumulate in the animal, which has impacts on the animal. And then, of course, it can biomagnify in predator species, which has a larger impact on predator species, one of whom are humans. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question, of course, has been, like, what animals are more susceptible to eating plastic? Well, the concern has been that turtle, sea turtles are particularly susceptible to eating plastic. And the long-standing belief in the science community was that that's because plastic looks like food. And there's a classic image of, an activist have used this image, a jellyfish in a plastic bag, yep. and they say, this is food for sea turtles. Fair enough. So some researchers were looking at whether this was the case. And they brought up, um, they, they subjected some sea turtles, um, was it, what species was it? Well, I can't remember the species off the top of my head. But anyhow, they basically had these sea turtles encountered two different kinds of plastic, 
plastic that had been freshly introduced into the marine environment and plastic that had been in the water for a while. And the turtles ignored the new plastic entirely and ate the plastic that had been in the water for a while. Why? Well, the answer was because the plastic that had been floating in the water for a while had bioaccumulated a bunch of growth, algal growth and bacteria growth. And so it turns out that the sea turtles were actually relying heavily on scent to smell their food. Oh. And so it wasn't that the plastic looked like their food. It was that the plastic smelled like their food. And so this is sort of a new, I mean, it's one study and obviously more work yeah. needs to be done. But it does really introduce this idea. It really challenges a preconception in science. And, you know, and that's the kind of thing we have to embrace because new information gives us the ability to look at the world in a more accurate light, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Actually, bringing it back to PPE, this is one of my personal concerns with face masks. Because of the melt blow nature of the material, there's a lot of surface area for plants and algae to grow on masks. Um, my colleague Gary was down on our beach oh, in November. And he had a hey, one hour. They could see how who could collect more masks in an hour, and you're getting past fifty. The whole thing kind of got um, pretty overwhelming. Uh, but a lot of the masks he was finding were heavily biofouled. Okay. It's already algae growing on them. They've already accumulated oil and other materials, and you can see that the masks that we found in November, in, in, in January, and February, February 2020, were light, and they were they looked like they'd been in the water for a few weeks. The masks we're finding now, some of them look like they've been in the water for, for months. Yeah. That, to me, is a really big concern because if smell is indeed a factor that influences animals eating plastic and masks grow plant life and algae and bacteria really easily, then that, to me, is a worry that we're going to start finding animals with bits of masks in their guts. Yeah. And we already are starting to find that, in fact. Um, there's been some recent cases. So that, that, to me, is there's more research needs to be done on that. But really, we're kind of waiting for the first was porpoise to wash up dead with masks in its blood. I mean, I think it's more of an inevitability rather than a possibility. Well, and that kind of, I think we can talk a lot about the situation we're in, uh, and there's so much. And in this study, I really encourage people to go to oceansasia.org and look up the study because it really is fascinating, not just in regards to PPE, but over, I, again, it, it put into context for me stuff I've been hearing for years, and I just was never able to fully rationalize um, it verifies things I believe, you know, you're talking about the plastic waste by generation by industrial sector, uh, plastic mm. waste generation by uh, industrial sector. Sorry, I read that wrong. And packaging outweighs everything else by at least 150 um, percent. Yeah. And, you know, OK, so that's something I've been doing this year, which is I'm not going to order things online if I can buy them local. And if I'm going to buy them online, I'm going to buy them from people who make the thing, not someone mm. who packages and ships it to me. Uh, yeah. Right, like the packaging is particularly onerous because it's designed for one. It's obviously mostly designed for one-time use, and so you know I have some plastic items in my kitchen. Look, actually, I see a good classic item, but like yeah, there's some like plates that we inherited from my partner's grandparents. Mm-hmm. These are like camping plates, like the hard plastic. Yeah, like, uh, the mylar. They, they've definitely been in the family for forty years. Forty years, like it's passed on like the heirloom china that it's. Well, not, that's yeah. I've right? got a Snoopy plate that I use once a week that I have distinct memories of from when I was four. Right. Yeah. yeah. My, my parents were still like they're giving my children's cutlery to like like my nieces and nephews. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that plastic made it into the environment right away. But the packaging is particularly egregious because it is quite literally used for a tiny fraction of time, and then it becomes garbage. Right. Um, and, but the great news is. I, I didn't know this, but um, I finally found a dental floss container that's cardboard. I was out buying dental floss, and yep. um, I don't know the brand here, but I found it was in a cardboard box. And I was like, you could have done this all along? Like, all this time, it's been 
I mean, what plastic was, you know, commercialized. Forty. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. 40, 50 years. And suddenly, like, you could have just put your dental floss in a cardboard box. Like, what, where has this been all this time, right? And it really does, first of all, it's nice to see some companies doing that. But it also throws into stark shame and embarrassment to companies that aren't doing that, that don't seem to care about the environment at all. Um, or if they do, they're taking their damn time with it. And that's really interesting. And what's interesting about both in Canada is that you know, Canada has committed to banning single-use plastic by, I guess, this year, I suppose. Yep. And it's going to be interesting to see how that rolls out because you know when we're talking about banning plastic, we're usually talking about banning unnecessary single-use plastic mm-hmm. because some plastic is necessary. And look, if I'm in a situation where I want to use plastic for a medical situation or like we talked about with the surgical masks in the medical setting, absolutely. Like, you know, plastic can be very great. It's incredibly malleable and, and functional material. But we use way too much of it, and we use so much of it in unnecessary situations when there's a much better replacement. That's the critical thing. It's not that people are against plastic in general. It's that unnecessary plastic is the problem. Well, and that's a great point. Right now, one of the things, again, came up in the report that we've all been talking about uh, who have concerns about the environment is the takeout containers. Again, in Canada, Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, DoorDash, and uh, a gazillion independents. Uh, are making it possible for restaurants to still deliver food in Ontario. They're still delivering booze, which is significant. Um, it's it's a new thing, and it that's that's an an after the call conversation, but it's actually a very significant political thing uh, for the health industry. But nonetheless, we then have the power of purchase, and this is hard. And I think right now it's harder because of the situation we're in. But I will call out one of my favorite restaurants that are my good friends, the Hardy Hooligan on Ottawa Street North in Hamilton. Um, all of their, they, they pivoted to takeout from being a dine-in place primarily, almost instantly. And the entire time, it has been compostable stuff or reusable stuff. Um, they don't automatically put stuff you don't need in the bag. Like, again, I ordered food from one place. They sent me four plastic forks to my home. I, I found this amazing taco truck in uh, at the Car Free Day two years ago here in Victoria, yep. and they were giving out metal forks with yeah. their food if you want one. And I was like, "Is this economical?" They're like, "We go to a charity shop and we buy all of their cutlery. It's like fifty cents a pound or some ridiculous mm-hmm. amount. Then like, I'm not going to throw that fork out. I'm taking it home. I still have like, one fork in our shelf in our, in our in our kitchen. It just like it's an outlier, and I have to remind myself where I got that fork from. But like, you know, obviously that is not." That's an interesting model, and I thought it was quite novel. But like, yeah, I'm not going to throw that fork away. It's a metal fork. I'll take it home with me. Um, on on the PPE and and plastic increase during COVID, there's been sort of three interesting things that have, that have come up. So you've mentioned one of them as to why plastic pollution has been increasing during COVID. That's takeaway food. So many more places are using takeaway, um, and that's obviously creating more packaging. It doesn't have to, but it is. And the other two was that we've actually seen in many jurisdictions a rollback of efforts designed to reduce single-use plastic. Yes. So yep. perception, and this is a perception that's been, that's been pushed by the plastic industry and lobbyists aggressively, this perception that plastic is more hygienic, which in many situations it's not. Um, and it depends on the context, obviously. But we've seen rolling back of numerous jurisdictions have been actually banning, bringing back single-use plastic bags, mm-hmm. pausing bans on single-use plastics. I mean, in jurisdictions here, even like grocery stores in Victoria, we had for a while, and in some places they still have this, where you can't bring your own reusable bag yep. and you can't bring your own reusable mug. Now, I do appreciate how there's a balance between keeping workers safe, which, you know, reusable mug at a coffee shop, yeah, fair enough. They don't know if it's clean or not. Okay, cool. With the bags, yes, people don't wash their reusable bags very often. They probably really should. Please do, by the way. They get the- <laughs> 
Um, bit of a bit of a you know public service announcement. Yes, yeah. your reusable bottles would be also washed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get nasty. Um, but you see this rolling back, and the concern that we have in, in the movement of people who've been trying to, to to reduce the use of single use plastics is that these temporary measures during the pandemic will become permanent. And people have been fighting to ban plastic bags and straws and other unnecessary single use plastic items for decades. And it would be heartbreaking to see the pandemic reverse those efforts, but they have paused them in certain jurisdictions. And that's a big critical thing. So in addition to increased use of PPE and takeaway, you also have this rolling back of plastic conservation efforts, uh, reduction efforts. And that's that's worrisome. Uh, Canada was one of the few places that actually continued with its single use plastic ban in, during the pandemic. Um, and that was kind of quite inspiring, but um, I, I'm... I will be excited about that when I see how it looks in the end and how it's rolled out. I, it's, uh, yeah, I know. I, I, I'm cautiously optimistic, I think, as well. Like, yes, we're going to proceed with this, but let's see when it actually happens. And that was my experience, too, whether it was at home hardware, the grocery store, uh, and people are saying, no, you can't bring that in or no, we're, you have to use one of our bags today. And then and sure enough, it didn't take long for them to switch back, but they also then didn't actively tell people, mm-hmm. by the way, you can now bring your own bag again. Right. It's, 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 it's little like, things like yeah. that of like, all right. Let's... Well, you were just saying earlier, like how people, how things change based on the situation and the circumstances. Right. And I think that we get stuck in our ways and it's totally reasonable if a company wants to reduce, you know, say you can't bring in your reasonable mug for a few months because we have health concerns for our mm-hmm. employees. Absolutely reasonable. But like you say, like that can't become permanent, but it does kind of undermine a lot of the messaging that's been going on for years. And that becomes a really big challenge when it comes to communication around. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of this stuff that we've been talking about that is, I'd say, global in nature. These are things that need to be talked about uh, by the UN, by NATO, at these high-level meetings with people who have some control over the fate of 8 billion people on this planet. Right. Like I can't stop Americans from using as much plastic as they do. And I know the American listeners may get upset at that, but Americans use more plastic per capita than anyone else on the planet. And that's very measurable and known. Um, So I look then around, what can I do? Uh, I know know, I've been feeling with my, I I carry a pocket knife. I got it originally because I wanted, I I like having a pocket knife, but I also got it because it has fold out scissors, which I use on all of those plastic cup lids uh, that squirrels and skunks get stuck in. Yeah. Uh, So I can't always carry things with me with garbage because in Hamilton too, this is lovely. Uh, I've requested three times now if we could have garbage cans installed. We're a lot of one-way streets, busy roads, five lanes across. Can we have a garbage can on the other side of the street too? Because there's a ton of garbage mm-hmm. on the ground here and there's no garbage cans. And I'll walk my dog for 45 minutes and not come across a garbage can. So I don't always pick up garbage, but I do try and render it less harmful at times. And the other thing I've been doing is with the knife, breaking the strings on masks. So yeah, so there's been some concerns around that. Yeah, so let's talk, talk about like masks and wildlife and NPV because yeah. I want to jump into that really quickly just before we get into the loops and the masks. There's been a lot of interesting research on littering done that like people measure the number of steps that individuals are willing to take to go out of their way to find a garbage bin, mm-hmm. and it's disappointingly low. Don't have the number off the top of my head, but the number of steps people are willing to take to go to a garbage can is very low, and. Some groups are working on ways of like reducing the barriers that people have when they're trying to dispose of things safely, like PPE and face masks. Mm-hmm. And one of them was like better signage, right? If you know there's a garbage can 200 meters down the road, you'll carry that garbage for another 200 meters. Maybe, hopefully, you probably would. Most, hopefully yeah. most people would as well. Um, 
But if you don't know if you're going to encounter a garbage, then maybe you won't carry it around with you. Some countries in Southeast Asia don't have public garbage bins. You're expected to bring your garbage home with you. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing issue we have out here in the West Coast is having garbage cans that are particularly like wildlife safe. Yep. So I'm frustrated by this all the time. The park in our, our park around the corner has a wildlife proof garbage bin. Fantastic. The park a block away doesn't. And it's always covered in trash because the raccoons get into the garbage mm-hmm. and they do what raccoons do, which is like, you know, eat, eat stuff in the garbage can and make a mess. And then that garbage enters the environment and washes into the ocean. And so it can be as simple as like having wild wildlife proof garbage bins, or as you say, having garbage bins. Yeah. Um, also uh, some groups in, in Europe were doing little footprints that would actually lead you on That's, the ground. Like, yeah. I love that. Right. Cause it's just like, if you can't find it, you won't necessarily use it. I will go out of my way to maybe like find a garbage bin, but I'm a cyclist. We're car happily car free. If I don't, if I look around and I don't see a bike rack, I will leave my bike up against the post and lock it right there. Like I'm not going to mm-hmm. go and like walk around the building looking for bike parking. So like make it obvious, put up signs, remove barriers, educate the public. These are simple things governments can do and they should be doing to reduce not just PPE in general, but litter, you know, litter entirely, right? Yeah. There's so many things that are so simple. But yeah, signage is, is a big one. And um, well, let's talk ear loops though. <laughs> yeah, so the ear loops, I've seen a couple of posts and I'll be fair, I have not seen this to be a, from my channels, I have not seen it to be a crisis at this point, the way six pack rings are. However, I think it's also fair to point out, as you've noted, that a lot of this stuff is ending up in waterways where we don't see it. So, like, again, in Hamilton, I'm not going to see a lot of waterfowl in my little landlocked area. I'm on Lake Ontario, but I got to go five kilometers to get there. So I'm not going to see a lot of ducks sitting around, but I'll see squirrels. And squirrels can just chew through that stuff. So even if they got stuck, I'm unlikely. You know what I mean? But that doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah, the RSPCA in the UK. So earlier in the year, there was a gull found in Chelmsford in the UK. Then mm-hmm. it had it had its feet entangled in a mask, and it was still alive, but it was like very entangled. And the news the last few days actually has been there's been some new photographs that came out of monkeys playing with face masks and chewing on them. Um, and uh, so I've been sort of following the news on that. And so you know, humans react to these iconic images, right? So when we say six million, you know, six thousand tons of face masks into our oceans this year. That's harder to conceptualize back to the very first part of our conversation than a picture of a crab found by Mayor Propera in the Mediterranean that's been suffocated by a mask, right? These cases, I think, are kind of outliers because, as you note, most of the mask straps are cotton. It's quite weak. It, it, um, it degrades quite quickly. Now, that's not going to necessarily mean that it won't entangle the feet of a bird, which could then you know, not do very well or potentially starve while that's kind of breaking down. Um, but it does mean that you know, a relatively strong animal can break free. This is the problem with monofilament from fishing nets, right? Fishing nets yeah. are designed to catch animals. If you have a ghost net, a fishing net that's been lost or discarded, it continues to fish, sometimes at 30% capacity, um, and continues to kill wildlife. Uh, and there's actually this really horrifying concept of yo-yoing, wherein um, a fishing net will slowly enclose upon itself as it becomes weighted down with dead animals, hit the bottom, and ball up. And then as the animals are decomposed, it opens up again oh my and God. then more wildlife accumulates and it creates this ongoing cycle. So the big concern with face masks in my mind isn't necessarily the straps, it's microplastic. Yeah. So the melt blown polypropylene that the masks are made out of breaks up really quickly. Uh, so we're actually starting to find chunks of masks washed up on the beach now in Hong Kong rather than full masks. But again, it doesn't break up into nothing. It doesn't dissolve into the water. It breaks up to microplastic. 
And that is hugely problematic. So because, you know, bigger plastic entangles animals. So sure, the straps of a mask might entangle a fish and it might lose a flipper, unlikely as that might be. But the microplastic, because it breaks down such small, smaller and smaller pieces, gets everywhere. So like as I was saying a little while back, it gets into the, you know, the water itself. It gets into sea spray. Smaller animals eat it and then it bioaccumulates and then it biomagnifies until it's in everything. Mm -hmm. um, I have some stats in the report, which I won't have in front of me at the moment, but the percentage of fish that people find in the market that have plastic inside of them can be as high as 30%, right? Yeah. Or plastic in the stomach of seabirds in some areas. Um, what, was the, what was the number here? You know, an island that markets itself as the cleanest place on earth, as much as 90% of the seabirds on, that, on the beaches have plastic in their stomachs, right? And so the microplastic to me is a big concern, principally because the milk material of face masks is susceptible to breaking up really quickly. Um, and I mean, there was a study that came out, I think last week, on tiny plastic particles from clothing being found in the ices of the Arctic. Um, and I may have been a study, I didn't get into the details on this one, but they were finding microplastics in placenta for, for Yes, I heard about that. I, someone yeah. mentioned that to me in passing and my brain went, nope, can't deal with that right now. Um, I had the same reaction. I haven't gone into the literature on it because it was kind of just, this is a bit too horrifying for yes, the moment. Yes, yes. Living marine plastic stuff. But plastic is ubiquitous. But the way that plastic becomes most ubiquitous is not bottles and cups and forks. It's when those break down to microplastic. That's a big problem. Well, that's, and it's really hard to clean up too, because what are you going to do? Like, you can't vacuum up the beaches. You know? Well, again, this is the, uh, uh, you would reference the Mount Everest uh, stream samples. Mm -hmm. There's it, it in the report, I remember seeing a number and I just looked for it. A study by Orb Media found that plastic fibers in 83% of all water, uh, or found plastic fibers in 83% of all tap water samples tested. Right. And this includes yeah. in North America and in Western, like, they're, they're, like it's, it's, it's now, it's the zombie virus. We all have it and we're waiting for it to get us. It kind of feels like. So on that yeah. note, how do we stop ourselves from becoming plastic zombies in a generation? <laughs> well, and this is, this is kind of one of the policy discussions in the world of people who are trying to protect our oceans from marine plastic. There's been some folks that are advocating cleanups. I'm like, look, do a beach cleanup. It feels good. It helps. But ultimately it's Sisyphean in nature because you know, another wave washes in with another wall of plastic, which you have to clean up. The metaphor that um, another colleague used back in a while back, which I think was very accurate, was if your bathtub is overflowing, you turn off the bathtub and then you mop up the water. Yeah. And so what we critically need to do is reduce our consumption of plastic, you know, and, and fix our waste management systems. That's critical. You know, the beach cleanup and ocean cleanup projects, they actually may be counterproductive in some situations because they give people the false sense that we're doing something about the problem. But you cannot clean up plastic faster than we are producing and wasting plastic. Now, doing all those things at once is very good. But if you're putting your efforts into one thing, and, and obviously don't because the world's complicated and there's lots of problems. Yeah. But just a cleanup is not enough. We absolutely have to reduce our plastic consumption. And that there's responsibility in that case, as you said, from the consumer, like don't buy lots of single-use plastic stuff. Producers need to step up as well, right? They need to step up and produce products that people can buy, right? Like if I want to go plastic free or reduce my consumption of plastic, but I want dental floss, you yeah. know, and I can't find dental floss that isn't in a plastic container, then I'm going to buy a plastic container. But now I know there's a company that makes it with a cardboard box, right? And so that's critical. And then governments also have a role to play because the market is so distorted in favor of single use plastic that a lot of externalities are not internalized into the products. 
So the cost of disposing of something isn't included in the product. So your single-use plastic item at like Dollarama is super cheap compared to like the sustainable alternative at mm-hmm. Whole Foods or you know community like natural food place. And that's a problem. And so governments need to actually say, no, you are responsible for the disposal of your product. You actually have to have functioning recycling systems in place. You may have noticed this in the report, but there's some scathing reports that came out a couple of years back and this year as well, uh, or 2020 rather, uh, around like how good is recycling? Yes. Not very good. Like yeah. 9% of plastic in America gets recycled. That's not good at all. That's not even like, no, <laughs> that's nowhere near what we need to be doing. Well, and that's and also hearing stories about like there was a plastic cube sitting in a dock in the Philippines, was it? Or a of like Canadian trash that we sent and they weren't accepting for one. I, it was, I think, some bureaucratic snafu, but it actually went deeper than that. So just to jump in on that one, yeah. we had um, as we we're writing a report, like about two weeks before we released it, a new study came out looking at sources of plastic pollution. So previously, a lot of the research was around these 10 major rivers. Uh, 10 major rivers that are a source of plastic pollution. And the vast majority of them are in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And so the concern was like, ah, Southeast Asia is producing all this plastic and they're bad. But then you look at the question like, well, where is that plastic coming from in the first place? It turns out it was North American and European plastic that was being shipped to China and the Philippines for disposal. And so China and the Philippines actually changed their policies of saying, we're not going to accept garbage from North America because we're still figuring out how to deal with all of our garbage here. Mm-hmm. And they shut down plastic and garbage waste imports. And so that, I mean, that, the reason why, so, so, so rather the plastic that we could be finding on the beaches in Hong Kong, most of it is washed down from the Pearl River system. Where the plastic come from, come from in the first place? Yes, some of it's from China, absolutely. But a ton of it's from North America because we're shipping our plastic there. And this is the global nature of waste, right? And uh, you know, there's all these sort of stories about someone found a motorcycle in a shipping container washed ashore in, in, on Vancouver Island you know, had been washed ashore from the tsunami yeah. from Japan years ago. And, you know, we'll find bottles on the beach that clearly didn't come from Canada. Um, and it's a global problem. And so that's one thing that like you were talking about international cooperation. It is a global problem. And, you know, people have this false sense of, of, of security, like out here on the West Coast, where our beaches are they're pretty clean. But then if you go to a remote beach, which are hard to access, they're just covered in plastic. Yeah, And so, like, that's, that's the challenge. And so, yes, I mean, when it comes to international cooperation, and my, my background is in international relations, so I always always add these into my conversations, even if it's hard for an individual to say, like, convince the World Health Organization to do X or to convince the, you know, ASEAN countries to adopt a policy on Y. Um, international cooperation is a huge role to play, whether that's, like, large international agreements like MARPOL um, and other, like, pollution-based agreements or whether it's like bilateral agreements and multilateral agreements for countries that share a river system. Yeah. Right. So these issues all need to be dealt with at a wide range of, of levels. You know, for example, you can't, you can have a, you can be a downstream country that has amazing plastic policy, but if you're upstream countries dumping single use plastic into the river, nothing will change or the situation will be just as bad. And so it's one of those aspects where there is no panacea and we need to be doing lots of different things at every level. And so people who are listening can reduce plastic consumption in their own lives, but they can also get their city to ban single-use plastic items. It's not too hard. Municipal campaigns are a great way to get people involved in activism. We were discussing this before yeah. we... Uh, Municipalities you know, we are where change begins. It is the community yeah. level of government. And there's been a wave of bans of single-use plastic bags and straws and other items. So there's a lot of areas there. 
And then, yeah, if you are in a position to get your province or region to, to ban single-use plastic that are unnecessary, then do it. And, you know, work internationally as well. It's, it's kind of one of those things with all these environmental problems is you do what you can, and sometimes your capacity is, is greater depending on your circumstances, and in that case, do that. To read the Oceans Asia report and find out more about what they're working on, visit OceansAsia.org. I want to thank Teal for his time. We had a fantastic conversation before and after this interview, and I look forward to having him on as a guest again in the future. I also want to thank all of you for listening. Remember to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to get notified of new episodes and to follow the Fur Bears across social media. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong.